Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the devastating blow the Supreme Court dealt today to public health, essentially taking the public out of public health by denying the government's ability via the Occupational Safety and Health Administration to deal with a public health crisis as the COVID pandemic rages with over 800,000 Americans dead and counting. Joining us is William Hazeltine, Chair and President of Access Health International, Incorporated, as well as Chairman of the Hazeltine Foundation for Science and the Arts. With a prolific career in science, business and philanthropy around the world, he was a professor at Harvard Medical School and Harvard School of Public Health and is well known for his pioneering work on cancer, HIV, AIDS and genomics. And he has founded more than a dozen biotechnology companies, including Human Genome Sciences, and serves on the advisory board of a number of international entities, from the Brookings Institution to the Council on Foreign Relations. And he's the author of a number of books, the latest of which is A Family Guide to COVID. Then we'll look further into this counterintuitive, counterproductive defiance of common sense and science by the Supreme Court's right-wing majority, and address the problem of the politicization of public health in our increasingly divided and contentious polity. Joining us is Jonathan Metzel, Professor of Sociology and Psychiatry at Vanderbilt University and Director of its Center for Medicine, Health and Society. He is the author of several books, the latest of which is Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. Then finally, we'll examine the other blow dealt to President Biden's agenda today, undermining the Democrats' ability to govern and win future elections, and that is the speech before the Senate by Democratic Senator Sinema just prior to Biden's arrival on Capitol Hill for a lunch meeting with the Senate Democratic Caucus, in which she effectively killed voting rights legislation by refusing to alter the filibuster rule, thus ensuring the Republican voter suppression underway will doom her party. Joining us to get a perspective from Arizona on their treacherous senator is Rodolfo Espino, a former political scientist at the Arizona State University. He is now a full-time political consultant for various civil rights organizations, including the Intertribal Council of Arizona and the Lawyers' Committee on Civil Rights. His research and work explores voting behavior and redistricting, especially its impact on minority communities, and has served as an expert witness in cases involving voting rights and also testified before Congress regarding the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act. And before we begin today's program, I'd like to thank a growing number of listeners who have become subscribers to Background Briefing, making monthly donations to our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is William Hazeltine, the Chair and President of Access Health International, as well as Chairman of the Hazeltine Foundation for Science and the Arts. With a prolific career in science, business and philanthropy around the world, he was a professor at Harvard Medical School and at the Harvard School of Public Health, and is well known for his pioneering work on cancer, HIV, AIDS and genomics, 
And he has founded more than a dozen biotechnology companies, including Human Genome Sciences, and serves on the advisory boards of numerous international entities, from the Brookings Institute to the Council on Foreign Relations. And he's the author of a number of books, the latest of which is A Family Guide to COVID. Welcome to Background Briefing, William Hazeltine. Thank you. Thank you for that generous introduction. Well, thank you, but it's all true, and you've been in public health for most of your life. So how do you feel about what happened today with the Supreme Court? To my mind, they're literally taking the public out of public health. It's uh, very close to that. You know, there's a law going back, Roman law, going back to the time of Cicero, almost the year zero, 2,000 years. Salus populi suprema lex esto, the public health is the greatest good. That's even engraved on the several of our state seals. It's a very fundamental principle of law that the public health is the greatest good, which means it supersedes all other laws. That has been the bedrock of pandemic control for the last 2000 years. The Supreme Court seems to be going backwards on a very narrow basis against that very fundamental principle that the role of the state is to protect us, particularly to protect our health. And they ruled today six to three against President Biden's ability through the Occupational Safety and Health Administration to get uh, large companies to mandate vaccines for their employees. And as a kind of compromise, if you will, they ruled five to four on allowing vaccination requirements for healthcare workers at facilities that receive federal money. And that vote was Chief Justice John Robertson, Justice Brett Kavanaugh joined with the Liberal justices to form the majority. But William, when you look at that vote itself, that still means that there are four Supreme Court justices who don't think that healthcare workers should be vaccinated and protected. How crazy is that? Well, yesterday we had... 860,000 Americans infected. We had 2,750 die. And I suspect today the numbers will be a little bit higher. One of the fundamental reasons for that is we have not had a powerful federal response. The pandemic is not a matter of a state issues. It is a matter of our whole country. And to deny the federal government the authority to act in a public health emergency of this magnitude, with over 800,000 Americans dead at this point, is close to insanity. It is political stalemate of the worst type, leading, I believe, to hundreds of thousands of deaths in the past and hundreds of thousands of deaths in our future. And if we should be subject unfortunately, to another pandemic, the federal government, as a result of this ruling and others, does not have the power to save us. And it's power that is very badly needed. And uh, President Biden, of course, whose presidency is in trouble, and uh, he got a blow this morning from Senator Sinema, who went to the Senate floor and said she's not going to do anything about the filibuster, which means that the Voting Rights Act bills will never pass. And Possibly the Democrats won't have a chance in the next elections as a result of voter suppression going on. So he's reeling from that blow this morning. 
when he went to have lunch with the the Senate Democratic Caucus on Capitol Hill. And then later today, of course, the Supreme Court ruling comes down and the President Biden says, quote, I am disappointed that the Supreme Court has chosen to block common sense life-saving requirements for employees at large businesses that were grounded squarely in both science and the law. Again, you can make sense, but it doesn't matter. Power talks over principle, does it not, or over common sense in this case. In, in, in this case... It's disastrous, not only for the present, and it doesn't. It's not an issue uh, for Republicans or Democrats. It's an issue for all Americans. This virus doesn't know if you're a Republican, a Democrat, a uh, right-wing uh, activist, or a right-wing, left-wing activist. It will get you no matter who you are. And what this ruling does is deprive our government of an important tool uh, to control the pandemic. And I think it will be used in future, this decision, to deny the federal government further abilities to help protect us, protection that it's obvious that we badly need and sorely lack. So are you suggesting that because this removes the ability of the Occupational Safety and Health Administration to protect public health, it could also mean that protects workers' health from injury, et cetera, in the workplace? Is that the implication? It's, it's, it's in times of, it's, that's not the argument. In times of pandemic, as we are in now, we need a central government authority to begin to, to issue whatever is needed, as in times of war. You know, even in the worst wars we've had, we have never lost so many lives. We are at a war with nature. And under the rules of most war, the central government can suspend the rights of the states and the rights of individuals. And that is what we should do under this situation if we want to get the pandemic under control. And the Supreme Court should have recognized that duty. The higher law is not to the occupational health and safety law. It is to the right of the central government to protect citizens. That has been sorely eroded by this decision. And again, I'm speaking with William Hazeltine as the chair and president of Access Health International Incorporated, as well as chairman of the Hazeltine Foundation for Science and the Arts, with a prolific career in science, business and philanthropy around the world. He was a professor at Harvard Medical School and Harvard School of Public Health, and is well known for his pioneering work on cancer, HIV, AIDS and genomics. And he's founded more than a dozen biotechnology companies, including Human Genome Sciences, and serves on the advisory boards of numerous international entities from the Brookings Institution to the Council on Foreign Relations and is the author of a number of books, the latest of which is A Family Guide to COVID. So I'm beginning to feel like, you know, that uh, from Star Trek, beam me up. In other words, I don't know what's happening to the country because you have eloquent dissents so often with the Supreme Court, but the reality is the power of the majority prevails and uh, clearly there's been an asymmetry between the Republicans' determination to get their people on the court and the Democrats' inability to recognize this as such an important priority, which now we are learning about. And I'm, assure, I'm sure that after this particular ruling, the writing is on the wall, overturning of Roe v. Wade, etc., seems inevitable. So are we just simply to accept that this is a kind of anti-science, anti-intellectual 
kind of tied against us here? Because when you read the dissent from the three liberal justices today, it just makes you realize how reality and truth is under siege. The dissent said today, when we are wise, we know not to displace the judgments of experts acting within the sphere Congress marked out and under presidential control to deal with emergency conditions. Today we are not wise. In the face of a still raging pandemic, this court tells the agency charged with protecting worker safety that it may not do so in all the workplaces needed. As disease and death continue to mount, this court tells the agency that it cannot respond in the most effective way possible. There you have it, uh, William. It's so clear. Your argument, but I think the mistake is conflating politics with disease control. They do not mix. There is a very clear way to control disease whether it's through vaccination, whether it's through identification, contact tracing, and isolation, there are very clear outlines. School of Public Health has written very clear guidelines amongst many other institutions of what to do under these circumstances. And to deny the, the government the power to do that, the central government the power to do that, is to ensure untold death and suffering in our country. And the mixing of politics with disease. Disease in, is inhuman. You should consider it not to be a human force. It's a force like a hurricane. It's a force like a volcano. It's a force like an earthquake. It's way beyond the human realm. And we are grappling with it as if it's a matter of politics. That is a dreadful mistake. It's already cost us hundreds of thousands of lives and will cost us hundreds of thousands of lives more. And this ruling makes it very difficult for our central government to protect us against future pandemics as well. It goes well beyond, in my view, the, the authority under the Health and Safety Act. This government should have the power to protect us against pandemics when they arise. And this constrains that power and it's to our great detriment. It's why for 2,000 years, governments have followed the early Roman law, which is that public health is the greatest good, and government has the right and the authority and the responsibility to protect us with whatever tools it has at its disposal. So what then can be done to reverse this politicization of health? Is it impossible to change, to educate? I mean, you would think that people... You know, there have been so many people that have been opposed to vaccinations and wearing masks that have gotten COVID and died. Some of them have been, you know, talk show hosts, etc. So you would think that getting a disease that kills you would be the ultimate wake-up call. But even that doesn't seem to have penetrated some of this political resistance that we have out here to public health. It's, it's a great sadness that that is the case. It's, this disease has killed presidential candidates, as you will recall. It's killed, uh, as I now look at it, over uh, 100,000 Americans and is on its way to killing perhaps another 800,000. Uh, we have no idea of how many people this will kill. So, you know, people learn over time. I'm very optimistic that over time people do uh, make the wrong decisions after making many bad decisions. My hope is that we will understand the nature of this threat 
and future threats. This is not the last infectious disease uh, to affect us. We have been, uh, on my watch, we've seen AIDS, uh, we've seen uh, various other coronavirus threats, uh, and we are bound to see many more. We're now a new ecosystem. We're 8 billion people living close packed uh, and are a prime target for many different infectious diseases. So we do need to learn. My hope is that eventually we will learn, but it isn't helped by decisions such as the Supreme Court's decision today. So just in closing, you know, I feel sort of perplexed and devastated by this ruling. You know, and, uh, <laughs> you can imagine how Biden feels and and public health people like yourself feel. So at the, at the end of the day, I'm hoping we can leave on some kind of a note. We're just, you know, in an anti-intellectual, anti-science climate, and we're stuck with stupidity dominating and ignorance. And it's just frightening to think that the age of enlightenment is over. I don't think it's stupidity. I think it's political expediency. The people who oppose this are not stupid. And they know, I think at some level, that these decisions aren't correct. However, they put their political preference above the health and safety of their fellow Americans. That's what's going on. It isn't that there, there's some, some of the people who I'm sure on Supreme Court making these decisions have a great deal of faith in science. They count on it to save their life and the lives of their children. Um, and they're taking whatever medications they can. They know, just look at the rules that they impose on themselves, the Supreme Court, uh, much tighter rules than almost any other organization. If you're gonna enter those chambers, if you're gonna argue before uh, the justices, you have to take very, very strict precautions. So they know it's that they have put political value above the safety of their fellow Americans, and that is a disaster. They are guilty of what I think is a crime. Well, William Hazeltine, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I wish it was under different circumstances, but this is what we've been dealt today, and uh, we have to deal with it. As we have been dealing with it for the last two years, and maybe the next two as well. Thank you very much for the opportunity to comment. I appreciate it. And again, I've been speaking with William Hazeltine, who's the chair and president of Access Health International Incorporated, as well as chairman of the Hazeltine Foundation for Science and the Arts. With a prolific career in science, business, and philanthropy around the world, he was a professor at Harvard Medical School and Harvard School of Public Health, and is well known for his pioneering work on cancer, HIV, AIDS, and genomics. And he has founded more than a dozen biotechnology companies, including Human Genome Sciences, and serves on the advisory boards of numerous international entities, from the Brookings Institution to the Council on Foreign Relations and is the author of a number of books, the latest of which is A Family Guide to COVID. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking further into this counterintuitive, counterproductive defiance of common sense and science by the Supreme Court's right-wing majority. Bring out your dead! Here's one! Ninepence. I'm not dead! What? Nothing. Here's your ninepence. I'm not dead! Here. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not he isn't. Well, he will be soon. He's very ill. I'm getting better. No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. Oh, I can't take him like that. 
It's against regulations. I don't want to go on the car. Oh, don't be such a baby. I can't take him. I feel fine. Well, do us a favour. I can't. Well, can you hang around a couple of minutes? He won't be long. No, I've got to go to Robinson's. They've lost nine today. Well, when's your next run? Thursday. I think I'll go for a walk. You're not fooling anyone, you know. Look. And joining us now, Jonathan Metzel, who's a professor of sociology and psychiatry at Vanderbilt University and the director of its Center for Medicine, Health and Society. He's the author of several books, the latest of which is Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jonathan Metzel. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So, Jonathan, this is an extraordinary development that took place today with the Supreme Court ruling that blocking President Biden's virus mandate for large employers through the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And the justices did allow a vaccine requirement for healthcare workers at facilities that receive federal money. The vote on the former striking down the vaccine mandate for private companies uh, was six to three with the three liberal judges, justice in dissent. And on the second vote for healthcare workers, the vote was five to four, with Chief Justice John Robertson, Brett Kavanaugh joining the three liberals to form a majority. So on the former, I find it extraordinary. I mean, it just seems like they're taking the public out of public health. How do you see it? Uh, I mean, we've had a four or five decade war on public health. I, I think liberals are just starting to wake up uh, to this fact that public health the uh, premise is that it's apolitical and in the common good. That's how many people think about it. But for about half of America, public health um, has connotations of surveillance and it's been cast as the opposite of liberty. Um, and this has been building through the gun debate, for example, where you know common sense gun reform has been continually derailed um, by the notion that basically taking away guns uh, is, a th- is a threat to public health. We've seen it with masks. Now we've seen it with, we see it with vaccines. And unfortunately, it just seems to me like the Democratic side is, is really just waking up to the, the profound national implications um, of this fact that it, it's seen public health as, as value-free uh, for too long and doesn't really have any tools to combat the, the messaging around public health for the half of the country that sees it as a, as a form of government intrusion. But this is also, politically, this is a devastating blow to President Biden, is it not? This is the biggest issue he's dealing with, the COVID pandemic. And it's probably the main reason why his poll numbers are low, because there's so much anxiety out there in the country. And, of course, all he could say today, because the Supreme Court, (laughs) unfortunately, is basically... Uh, the final word, at least that's what they say. President Biden said, I am disappointed that the Supreme Court has chosen to block common sense, life-saving requirements for employees at large businesses that were grounded squarely in both science and the law. So Biden's makes sense. The dissent by the three liberal justices makes a lot of sense. In fact, I can read the dissent. It says... When we are wise, we know not to displace the judgments of experts acting within the sphere Congress marked out and under presidential control to deal with emergency conditions. Today we are not wise. In the face of a still-raging pandemic, this court tells the agency charged with protecting workers' safety that it may not do so in all the workplaces needed. 
As disease and death continue to mount, this court tells the agency that it cannot respond in the most effective way possible. So what's happening to the country, Jonathan? Is just insanity has replaced reality? I mean, what's happening to the country is that we're nationalizing politics and policies that have just been limited to red states uh, for much of, of the past uh, several decades. And so we never thought that there would be national policies that would do. I, I'm in Tennessee. They basically dissolved the, the health department. We have no idea how much COVID is in the air. Um, you can't do a mask mandate. You can't do a vaccine mandate. I think half the country was fine saying that, that, that that's, that's okay as long as it's happening down there. But what we're now seeing is that the Southern strategy is becoming a national strategy and it's going to impact a lot, a lot of people. I mean, this ruling today will impact about 84 million people. Um, and so in a way, it shouldn't be surprising because it's, it's been happening. It's just, that, um, it's just that now that the stakes are much higher and particularly, so, of course, as we saw today, because um, the GOP and conservatives control not just the Supreme Court, but many appointments to many of the um, lower courts as well. Um, the stakes of, of winning elections and controlling controlling the courts is is massive. It's absolutely massive, and, and we're seeing that again today. Um, and, and so, really, the response is in part about a public health response, but the other response is to win elections and and, uh, and be able to appoint judges. And, of course, the one-two punch, I don't know whether you're referring to it, but today not only did Biden and the country get this terrible ruling from the Supreme Court, Senator Sinema basically just before Biden arrived at the Capitol today for the Democratic caucus lunch, she went to the Senate floor and basically killed the possibility of dealing with voting rights by refusing yeah. to budge on the filibuster. So she's doing a death blow to the, to the Democratic Party and to the president's agenda. And now, of course, the Supreme Court has done a huge blow to Biden's ability to deal with the single greatest challenge that he has. It seems like somehow the establishment is deciding to destroy this presidency and to bring about one-party rule. I don't understand it. Do you? I, I wrote a book called Dying of Whiteness. It was about how, for many people, um, power and uh, being a, a, a top-imagined position in a racial hierarchy was more important even than their own longevity. Um, I wrote that book as a warning that, based on what I was seeing in, in three southern states, and I think what we're just seeing is a nationalization of that politics that, um, you know, telling people, oh, we're going to get sick with COVID or we're going to live shorter lives. That matters to people who already care about public health. But for many people, the, the, the drive toward power and domination is, is much greater and it's highly, highly racialized, as I saw in my book. And so, unfortunately, it's just an expansion of the research that I found in my earlier, earlier work. And the terrifying part is that the checks and balances that we assumed were in place to stop this happening have been overturned, again, because of the politics themselves. And also, to be fair, because the Democrats have not placed nearly enough attention on the importance of the judiciary and putting the right judges in, in place. So, obviously, we're talking about sort of the tyranny of the, of the minority and the minority is gaining more and more political strength. And, of course, their ultimate strength in, in many ways is through the Supreme Court, which is being uh, made clear today. So what's the answer here? Does the sort of silent majority have to rise up? 
I mean, look at that Supreme Court. Look at those six justices. They don't represent anything like the full plurality and diversity of the United States of America and the people of the United States of America. They're all, except for one, white men. They're all, you know, men, most of them are members of Opus Day and far-right Catholic dogma, chosen by this one guy, Leonard Leo, of the Federalist Society. They don't even represent diversity within the Catholic Church, let alone within religion itself across the board. So this is what I find extraordinary, is that how far we've gone down this path of, of minority rule. Uh, you know, I, I could tell you that 85% of Americans support background checks, but we're never going to get background checks. I can tell you that many more people voted for Hillary Clinton, but Donald Trump won. Um, our political system is geared toward the outcome that we saw today. Um, in my home city of Nashville, the, uh, the Republicans have just divided the city of Nashville, which had, who had its own, uh, we had our own congressman into three distinct districts so that they would basically eliminate the votes of black and Hispanic and liberal voters and create a new conservative district for a new conservative seat. And so our whole system is being turned against us. But I also think it's important to recognize that this is the result of a 40-year campaign to control the judiciary um, that, that the Democrats have, have not really paid attention to. So it's no surprise, it's public knowledge that the Federalist Society had a list of judges and the day Trump took office, <laughs> that was their goal, was to get those judges into place. Um, and, and for better or worse, um, and it's harder with a razor-thin majority, judges were not a huge priority, relatively speaking, when, when Biden took, took over. And so the Republicans, I think, have rightly seen that the judiciary is the seat of a lot of power at, at this level. And, and the Democrats just haven't had an effective counter strategy. Our, our Supreme Court justices have not retired in a timely manner. Um, controlling the Supreme Court was a top-to-bottom strategy for many people at the at the um, GOP level, and it hasn't been that kind of laser focus. It's harder because the Republicans um, are much more uniform and monolithic party. Um, but this is what this has really been their vision of the Federalist Society and others for quite a few decades, which is if you control the judiciary, you control the power. And the Democrats are seeing now that they don't have a counter. They thought the counter would be a moral awakening or public health. Um, but as we see today, people are willing willing to lay down on the train tracks in support of power, and, and that's, that's what's happening now. And so Dying of Whiteness, the title of your book, is now manifest, right? It's, this is what's happening. The country's dying of whiteness. I mean, I can quantify for you <laughs> how many people are going to die based on this decision, um, and it, it's, it's a lot, right? and it's tragic, and it's horrible. And in, in a place like Tennessee, there's there's no employer mandate for vaccines and you can't mandate masks. And so people are just sending their kids to school or going to work with people with open COVID. Um, and, and, and so really it's, it's, it's inviting a kind of public health catastrophe. Um, certainly from the framework of public health, this is an absolute catastrophe um, in the immediate term and also long term because of long COVID, it's going to have a lot of long-term implications for just the health of the country going forward. Um, but if, if, but if you see it through the lens of like a power grab strategy, then you couldn't 
pick a more effective strategy than weaponizing the, the pandemic, which is what's happened. But can you make the case that the Republican Party is invested in death? Because it's those that refuse to get vaccinated that are keeping this pandemic going and allowing for these new strains to mutate and become more deadly and more infectious. And as long as you have that, what, 40 million, and I'm pretty much most of them are Republicans, refusing to get vaccinated, this thing goes on, right? And obviously it undermines Biden's presidency, etc. I mean, I'm, I'm not suggesting that Trump is necessarily behind the whole thing because he actually, Trump has actually made a couple of statements which have been booed where he's encouraged people to get vaccinated. And now he's saying that other Republican politicians who don't want to say they got vaccinated, like Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, are gutless. So, so, I mean, am I being unfair? I'm just so outraged by this decision today that maybe I'm just getting a little too steamed up. But can you make the case that there's an investment in death here for political purposes? I mean, certainly I, I wrote an entire book about how GOP policies shorten the lifespans of their own supporters and of other people. Again, it's been happening in the South for quite a few decades through gun policy, uh, the, the refusal to expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, cuts to public education and funding. Um, it's a terrible public health strategy, but it's a brutally effective power strategy. It's led to massive domination of the apparatus of the southern states. And again, Democrats saw it happening in the South um, and figured there was a kind of gentleman's agreement between two parts of the country. And really, that's not the case. I mean, um, when for all of the amazing work she did uh, over her incredible lifetime, RBG did not retire in time and gave that seat uh, really effectively back to the GOP. What Breyer's doing now you know, when the Republicans were in that space, for however they did it, they got their person to retire. And so they've got a lot of young justices who are now nationalizing a lot of Southern policy, policies. And so the Democrats should be asking, how can we can regain control of the courts? I mean, I think that's that's been the GOP strategy. And unfortunately, as much as I hate to say it, and it pains me to say it, this is just the first of a number of catastrophic rulings that are going to be coming down the pike in, in the next couple of months. Indeed, uh, Trump personally tried to get uh, Justice Kennedy to resign and uh, used his relationship that he had with Kennedy's son, who handled Trump's and Russian money at Deutsche Bank, you know, buttering up the father by saying, what a great, what a great son you have, etc. You know, so you're right. It's just they <laughs> They've seen, they've had their eye on the prize, and now they've won the prize, and we'll all suffer. And I imagine the next ruling will be to um, overturn Roe v. Wade. I think that's inevitable, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> I think it's inevitable. And I think there are other rulings, too. That's, there's just a, a lot coming down the pike. And, and again, you, you mentioned before, it was a 5 to four ruling. Even, you know, if you, if you go... <laughs> Your healthcare worker should be vaccinated. Shouldn't be giving you COVID when you go for a routine visit. Um, right, <laughs> and four justices think it's okay. It's that it's amazing but, but, to think that you have a Republican Party that they don't believe in a right to vote, but they believe in a right to infect. How crazy is that? 
but but again, Breyer's 83 years old and he's not retired for the, the time when it would have been safer to retire. So this, unfortunately, this is the system. No disrespect whatsoever to an amazing eminent justice. Right. But the Re- Republicans are playing for power and, and we're playing for the moral high ground. And, and so, you know, I think it's about time the Democrats figured out how to play for power. Um, but, but it's going to take a, a, ma- a massive radical shift in, in how we think about democratic politics. Well, Jonathan Messel, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks so much. And again, I've been speaking with Jonathan Metzel, who's a professor of sociology and psychiatry at Vanderbilt University and the director of its Center for Medicine, Health and Society. And he's the author of several books, the latest of which is Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. We can take a brief station break and back examining the other blow dealt to President Biden's agenda today, by Senator Sinema, who is refusing to alter the filibuster rule, thus ensuring the Republican voter suppression underway will doom her party. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Rodolfo Espino, who's a former professor of political science at Arizona State University and is now a full-time political consultant for various civil rights organizations, including the Intertribal Council of Arizona and the Lawyers Committee on Civil Rights. His research and work explores voting behavior and redistricting, especially its impact on minority communities, and he has served as an expert witness in cases involving voting rights and has also testified before Congress regarding the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act in 2006. Welcome to Background Briefing, Rodolfo Espino. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And Arizona's uh, Senator Cinema just before... President Biden arrived on Capitol Hill today to have lunch with the Democratic caucus and get them on board with these voting rights bills before the Congress, which Senator Schumer has promised to act on before January the 17th. She absolutely killed it. She went to the floor of the Senate and said that she, under no circumstances, will do anything to abolish the or even modify the filibuster. So... It's just yeah. breathtaking. So what, from the Arizona perspective, what's going on here? Um, well, it could be a sign of her looking ahead to what uh, might be lying before her in 2024. Again, even though Senator Kelly was most recently elected, he was elected in the special uh, election to replace the term of John McCain. So he's up in 2022 this year. And Senator Cinema does not have to worry about anything until 2024. And in, in running for 2024, uh, she has to take into consideration what the composition of the House may be in 2022. A lot of analysts have been indicating that it looks like there's a great possibility that Democrats may lose control of the House in 2022. And uh, that makes it really uncertain what Democrats might be facing in the presidential election of 2024 with lower offices. And the reason that's important for someone like Cinema, who's anticipated to run for re-election again in 2024, 
is that's going to be a presidential election year, and there's going to be what we call the presidential coattail phenomenons, is that the winning presidential candidate, whether it's Democrat or Republican, will often pull other lower office candidates from their same party into office with them. So if Democrats do lose control in 2024, uh, like they did in 1994, what the so-called Republican revolution, if that happens again in 2024, we might see a, that momentum uh, carrying um, in 2022, I should say, we might see that momentum carrying over into 2024, which would affect how cinema would be framing herself before the Arizona electorate and nationwide for that matter. And that's why it's it's interesting for many of us here in Arizona, why she has taken such a sharp turn from her early progressive days where she was very much affiliated with the Green Party uh, at the height of Ralph Nader. And then in my opinion, as a congressional scholar, I think a lot of her shift has to do with the nature of the House versus the nature of the Senate. The House is very rules driven. It's very uh, strict on debate, the 10 minute rule, whereas the Senate is more informal, operates more by informal agreements, uh, loosely written rules, uh, memos of understanding, if you will. And there's no really time constraints on debate. You know, there's only the motion to cloture, which is in reaction and response to the filibuster, which, you know, the filibuster has not changed much from its purpose uh, originally used um, informally in the early 19th century to the present. Um, but the, the issues facing our country today are much different than those issues being that the country faced in the mid-19th century, which has le- led to a lot of individuals to call for the end of the filibuster. It's outlived its purpose. Um, but cinema may be having an eye to 2024, uh, well, to 2022 and her run in 2024 says this is the only protection I have as perhaps now uh, maybe going to be a member of the minority party that I have to continue to keep my name in the news that she can perhaps have a conduct a filibuster that outlasts the record of um, Strom Thurmond, a former Democratic senator from South Carolina. Well, but there's no logic to that, Rudy, because the reason that the Democrats would lose and the Republicans would win in 2022 and 2024 is because of the massive voter restrictions, voter suppression, and changes in laws that are underway now, that these two laws, which she then says she supports, she says she supports the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Uh, And she's just quoting what she said on the Senate floor today. While I continue to support these bills, I will not support separate actions that worsen the underlying disease and division infecting our country. Well, if you don't support the voting rights bills, then the Democrats are going to lose. Biden's presidency is tanked, and she's going to lose in, in 2024. So it makes no uh, sense. Yeah. Yes, and what t- you have to take in consideration is that she may not lose the general election. What she m- is likely to lose is the primary election. If you look at polls conducted among likely Democratic primary voters currently, her popularity is well below 50%. I've seen some polls that show she only has anywhere between 30 to 40% among likely Democratic voters. And from what I understand, talking to various progressive organizations here in Arizona, there's a lot of discussion about what Democratic candidates that you can recruit to primary Senator Sinema before she even has an opportunity to run for the general election in 2024. Um, she's burned a lot of bridges in her terms since she was elected in 2018. A lot of, she's burnt a lot of bridges with progressive organizations nationally, but especially here in Arizona with important minority communities, Hispanics and Native Americans here. And so 
Yes, it's not that she's likely to lose the general election. It looks like she's likely to lose the primary election, given the way she's been acting with respect to voting rights legislation. And her support of the filibuster is just one more example of her trying to reach what she claims to be an effort to reduce partisan tensions. But she's doing it more for herself and less in the interest of the Democratic Party retaining control of at least one chamber of Congress. And again, I'm speaking with Rodolfo Espino, who's a former professor of political science at Arizona State University. He's now a full-time political consultant for various civil rights organizations, including the Intertribal Council of Arizona and the Lawyers Committee on Civil Rights. And his research and work explores voting behavior and redistricting, especially its impact on minority communities, and has served as an expert witness in cases involving voting rights and has also testified before Congress regarding the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act of in 2006. But since she's doing it for herself, and some people have suggested she's sort of a Marie Antoinette type, totally vain, loves being the center of attention, and she sure as hell is the center of attention, but she's going to be vilified, obviously. So what's the logic there? If you're going to be primaried by the progressive side of the Democratic Party, which are the ones that are active and vote in primaries, then she must be thinking, what? She's going to become a Republican, become independent. What, what strategy is involved here? Because it doesn't make sense. As I say, if you don't want to be booted out of the Senate, the reason you're going to be booted out of the Senate is because of the voter suppression underway by the Republicans. They're rigging the playing field to the point where they, they're guaranteed to win them. Without, <laughs> I mean, in other words, it's, it's clear that they've decided to cheat rather than compete. So... Given that environment, it makes absolutely no sense to block these two voting rights bills, which are the Democrats' last chance to level the playing field. And then on top of that, by taking this stance, you're angering the Democratic Party and you go down in history as the one who stuck the knife into the Democrats and caused their defeat and caused the collapse of Biden's agenda then you're going to get primaried. So on the surface, I'm sorry, I'm I'm sort of floundering here, Rudy, but I don't get it. What's going on? Well, I think perhaps she is uh, misreading not only uh, just what's going on within the Democrats' effort to reinstate uh, the Protection of Voting Rights Act, but I think she is failing to recognize how much history has changed and in particularly how much the Republican has, Party has evolved and changed since the Republican Party that we knew that was what we would say was the permanent minority party from the 1950s till 1994. Um, it, largely that Republican Party that we knew of back then was considered the conscious of Congress, right? Always keeping the majority party Democrats in check. Um, you know, so wait, you can't go that far. You can't go that far. Now the Republican Party has evolved into a different kind of um, beast, if you will. And what I think she fails to recognize is that the Republican Party um, and the ability to engage in dialogue and compromise with them no longer exists like it used to do in the 60s and 70s and into the 80s. Um, and we have examples of that here in Arizona politics. And what comes who comes to mind in particular is when Arizona only had two uh, congressional districts, you had a political icon, Mo Udall, uh, representing uh, Democrats. And then you had John Rhodes, the Republican representative. And they did so much uh, uh, bipartisan work, and that's how she wants to frame herself, is that she is the lone bipartisan that is looking to reach compromise. But when the other party is not willing to compromise, 
then who are you compromising with? You have no one to make a deal with. And I think she's, she, she's trying to frame herself as she's the one that's wanting to restore order and uh, comity to the Senate. And the Senate has become much more bipartisan. We see this in uh, voting behavior. It's the party and not the issues at hand and not the concerns of what your state needs. And that's a far different um, modality than we used to see back in the era when John Rhodes and uh, Mo Udall had worked together to bring a lot, for instance, agriculture with water coming through Arizona from the Colorado River infrastructure. And we just don't have that kind of bipartisanship nationally, but it also here in Arizona. And I think that's something that um, Kirsten Cinema is failing to recognize is that she still is operating in an era that there is room to compromise. But I like to tell some of my students and colleagues, it's like if you meet somebody and go out to dinner with them and you want chicken, they want salad. Well, a good compromise is chicken salad. But what if you want chicken and they want anthrax? Well, then there's no compromise. You know, you're not going to consume something that's going to be poisonous for you, your, your, your constituents in the country as whole. So I think she's misjudged how far right her fellow Republican colleagues have moved to be loyalists to, let's say, namely Trump and the Trump agenda, because that election of 2016 that ushered in air uh, Trump has dramatically, tra- dramatically changed not just the Republican Party, but in particular like how Senate Republicans act and behave today. Sure, and she's close friends with Congressman Mo Brooks, who spoke at the rally that before they stormed the Capitol. I mean, she's got to know where these people are coming from. And in terms of 2022, Kevin McCarthy was on Breitbart talking with Bannon, vowing to strip Democrats from committees, the yep. ones that he doesn't like, like Adam Schiff and Swalwell and the members of the squad. So, And then you've got Jim Jordan, talking about when they take the majority in the House, they're going to impeach Biden. This is what's going to happen. I mean, Cinema, wake up. If you think there's, <laughs> there's a lack of bipartisanship now and too much political rancor, wait until the Republicans take over in 2022. It's just going to go yeah, a thousand agreed. times worse. It's- yeah, the vitriol has definitely escalated. Um, there's no such thing as bipartisanship as we see it moving forward with important legislation, um, especially as it pertains to voting rights. Um, and so I think that that's where, again, I go back to I think cinema uh, um, has misjudged how much the Republican Party, especially the Republican Party within the Senate, um, has has uh, transformed and morphed into similar like the House in the or the, the part the GOP that we see in the House. It's no surprise that we see the GOP in the House acting the way it does, but it's very much a shock to a lot of congressional observers that the Republican Party in the Senate has shifted, morphed into the same party that has more fealty, loyalty to a certain individual personality than it does to the party itself. And that reminds me again, I mentioned the name of John Republican, uh, former representative here in Arizona, John Rhodes of Arizona. And what he's notable for is he was so loyal to the party uh, during the height of Watergate that he was one of the Republicans that actually went in to tell Nixon, look, we don't have the votes. You're hurting the party. You need to step down. And the Republican Party has become such that they're not willing to step up to a Republican uh, president, former Republican president, who has been impeached on circumstances that seem much more egregious than that for which um, Nixon was getting um, going to get impeached on. And so you don't have any Republicans willing to stand up to the president 
a former President Trump, well, that definitely is a signal that that means they're not going to be willing to compromise with a Democrat such as Cinema. And I think she just misjudged uh, how much, again, how much the Republican Party has changed uh, from the party that we knew about it, the conscience of Congress, now to a party 100% loyal to a icon, uh, a personality such as that of uh, Trump. Well, just in the last couple of minutes then, Rudy, it would seem to me that since none of this makes any sense and none of her calculations make any sense, and frankly, the op-ed she wrote for the Washington Post defending the filibuster a few months ago made no sense, I'm beginning to wonder whether she's just simply a saboteur, that she's going to get paid off enormously because she's going to tank the Democratic Party, she's going to tank Biden's presidency, and <laughs> I don't know who. I mean, I, mean it's, I know it sounds paranoid and sounds conspiratorial, but if you're the one person who's destroyed the chances of the Democratic agenda, then those that oppose the Democratic agenda, and you've got to believe there are a lot of rich and powerful people who oppose the Democratic agenda, are they going to reward her? Is she going to get out of politics? Because the political calculus here, none of it makes any sense. We've established that, surely. Yeah, I, I don't think that there's going to be any uh, payoff for her politically or, for instance, uh, financially by uh, playing this so-called bipartisan posi position because she's standing all alone. To have a strong bipartisan position, you're going to have to have some of your fellow Democrats and perhaps more importantly, some Republicans join you in your cause. And there's no one on the Republican side that I can see that's of significance that's willing to go and join her on in her at trying to restore bipartisanship in the Senate. And so she's basically out there all alone. I think she will pay the price, not necessarily in the general election, but in the uh, primary election in 2024. And if she's thinking that bipartisanship is going to help garner her support among Republicans, should she make it out of the Democratic Party? I think she has misjudged that, too, because Republicans in here, here in Arizona, frankly, are not even paying attention they're not even cheering on the fact that she's – they're not lending any support to her standing up to uh, you know, you know, the filibuster debate that Democrats want to change it. Nobody, she's, she's actually insignificant to Republicans despite her being one of the most conservative Democrats, um, but she's made herself insignificant to Republicans as well as to Democrats. So she's, again, on an island by herself. And um, that just doesn't work, um, given that we are a two-party system, have been since our founding, um, informally, but it just it's not going to change anytime soon. You're either a D or an R, and that has become reified, especially since the 2016 election. Rudy Espino, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Again, thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Rodolfo Espino, who's a former professor of political science at Arizona State University is now a full-time political consultant for various civil rights organizations, including the Intertribal Council of Arizona and the Lawyers Committee on Civil Rights. And his research and work explores voting behavior and redistricting, especially its impact on minority communities, and has served as an expert witness in cases involving voting rights and has also testified before Congress regarding the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act in 2006. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org. 
where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America One more.